This is the Power of Genetics podcast, the podcast designed to help visionary practitioners build a more successful practice, transform more lives, and lead their patients into the future of personalized health. In each episode, I'll interview successful practitioners and leading thought leaders who will share their insights and expertise to help you prepare your practice for what lies ahead. I'm your host, Dr. Yael Jaffe, and now let's get into today's episode. A very big and warm welcome to a very good friend and a colleague and a co-author and many other things, Dr. Christine Horton from Brisbane, Australia. Welcome, Christine. Thank you so much, Yale. It's a pleasure to join you. Christine and I have been working together for, what's it, since 2014, I believe? Is that right? Yes. Yeah, 2015. So that's a solid eight years. And it's not easy to get Christine to talk about anything other than uh, biochemical pathways, biochemistry, sulforaphane, switching on genes and things. But today I'm going to challenge Christine because I have been really lucky over the past eight years to work very closely with you. And we have done some extraordinary things together, which we will definitely get a chance to talk about. But really why I love this podcast so much and what makes it so extraordinary is that none of us arrive where we are on the podcast overnight. And I know in your case, you have been through an extraordinary journey of learning and growth and pivoting your career and change. And I also know that when others who are listening to this podcast hear the story, they are themselves inspired to keep on the journey and keep growing. So I hope you will share some of that story because from what I understand, you did not suddenly finish school and decide that you were going to be an expert nutrigenomics practitioner, sulfur, I'd say like the queen of sulforic, and that didn't happen overnight. So can you tell us a little bit about where this dream of health and kick-ass changing status quo happened and where did it start? Gosh, it's hard to know where to begin, but I guess it goes back to being about 12 and learning how to cook and looking at the magic of what you could create in the kitchen. And then as time gone, went by, becoming interested in food and health, my mother was always ahead of a time. We were eating homemade yogurt before the word had even reached the Australian vocabulary and mum was making coleslaw and dad grew 15 different vegetables at, at any one time and that sort of thing. So that was of great interest to me, but I never saw that as a career path. I wanted to be a high school teacher and I wanted to teach science. So that's what I embarked on. And I did two years teaching high school around um, schools in Queensland, Australia, where I live. And I'd had only the most fundamental teacher education to get there. And I realised I wasn't going to go very far without some more education. So I gave all that up, went back to university for three years and did my undergraduate science degree with a major in biochemistry. So that got me started. I expected to learn a lot about nutrition in a biochemistry degree. In fact, I did not. I expected to hear to learn about biochemistry in my nutrition degree and I didn't. Yes. So, 
I even did a subject in third year called nutritional biochemistry and I thought, oh, I'll be onto it now. But I wasn't. It's just such an archaic approach to nutrition in the biochemistry degree, even doing the Krebs cycle where all of the B vitamins appear. I'd be thinking at some stage somebody's going to say this is relevant to your diet, your health, your well-being because, but they never did. Luckily, I had enough curiosity to get some other books and read other things and learn about that myself. So at the same time, I became very interested in chiropractic and I went on to do a degree in chiropractic. So I graduated as a chiropractor with a biochemistry degree, which is a bit unusual because most of you graduate with an anatomy degree. But anyway, that was very good for me because in the practice of chiropractic, I, because of my focus on food and nutrition, I would see all these clearly nutrition-related conditions in my chiropractic patients. And little by little, we would start making simple introductions to change diet, change lifestyle, that sort of thing. In those days, you know, one wasn't chided for practising outside of the discipline. There wasn't a scope of practice barrier. And I continued to learn an enormous amount from my patients because we'd, you know, cut out the junk food, introduce whole foods or some such and watch the changes happen. So I discovered by accident that I developed a skill in treating people with blood sugar regulating disorders. And it was called hypoglycemia at that stage in the popular press. We wouldn't call it that now. It's a dysglycia. It's metabolic syndrome. It's all of those things that weren't called that at the time. And because I was developing some skills in that area and getting good results, next thing you know, I had a practice which was largely focused on glucose regulating conditions. So I thought I'd better get a nutrition degree and... um, So I did a part-time degree in nutrition from Deakin University in Victoria. That was pretty hard because it's a fairly demanding degree and I was still working full-time in the practice and husband, kids, family, the whole thing. But I finished that and that sort of gave me more of the formal aspects of nutrition, which were a really good foundation for what I did. So Around about the same time, I decided I'd divide my practice into two. So I had a chiropractic practice and a nutritional medicine practice, and the appointments would be blocked separately, and it was done as if I were two different clinicians. So we're talking about, if I just go back a little way to my entree into practice as a chiropractor, it was right at the introduction of the megavitamin therapy movement, the orthomolecular medicine movement, whatever we call it. And the focus in the US was very strong on using high-dose supplements. So at the time, Roger Williams's book, Biochemical Individuality, had become very popular and I bought the book. And I thought, this is fantastic. So we're all biochemically different and we can treat people in different ways. And the techniques were really megavitamin therapy. So, you know, if there was a a zinc enzyme where zinc was a cofactor that wasn't functioning properly, you'd give mega doses of zinc and and B6 at the same time. We practiced like that for a long time. I'm embarrassed to say I don't think it occurred to me at the time that this lovely label biochemical individuality gave us no ability to determine what 
a person's biochemical individuality was. We had no way of knowing that, but it sounded pretty flash. And um, it was only years later when I discovered nutrigenomics in the early 2000s that I realised that that's the tool that we need to explore the biochemical individuality of different people. So interesting how things move. And so I got pretty much caught up in practising along these lines where we did use a lot of cofactor minerals and coenzyme vitamins to try to drive a metabolic pathway to completion. Always for me, I'm happy to say, I always had a very strong underpinning of diet. I still have a very strong food-first approach, and I had it then too, although I would say that now there's no way I would want to use those megadoses of supplements in the way that we did back then. So that movement started in the 70s. It carried through to the 80s. I think it's changed its name along the way here and there. But essentially, I still see that lots of people are practising with this shotgun approach, really, megadoses of a whole array of different vitamins and minerals that we hope is going to somehow hit the target. When in fact, if we really better understood what we were trying to achieve, we would know that there are much more effective ways of doing that. So if I were to go back in practice now, and I haven't been since 2004, there's no way I would practice in the same way again. And I know now that I would get much better results for certain conditions than I did in those days. I think I still had a good handle on the blood sugar regulation then because it was more based on food choices, glycemic index, and particularly in the timing of food. It wasn't just what you ate, it's when you ate it and when you were able to introduce a different type of food. So that hasn't changed very much. But conditions we used a lot of vitamins and minerals for at that stage would have been mental health issues, and I think there's far better ways of treating those conditions now. Gut problems, that was more something I would have handled with diet. But I can see now where there were gaps in my knowledge that I had no way to fill at the time because it wasn't only me who didn't know, nobody else did either. So Nobody else did know. Yeah, and I think in the last 20 years, so this century, the world of nutrition has completely changed and 2004 was a defining year for me because I left clinical practice in May 2004 and Ben Van Omen had just published his first paper on nutrigenomics a little later in 2004. So I didn't pick up on that at the time. It was about a year or so later that I knew this new word, nutrigenomics, and I knew what it meant. But interestingly enough, I'd been doing some consulting work for some different companies. And I was doing some consulting work for a company in Brisbane here who was growing different sprouted seeds. And in the process of trying to understand what the product of these sprouts was all about, I had to dig into the literature and I discovered this whole concept of food being a home of signalling molecules, not just vitamins and minerals, etc. We know that. That's a given. But there's this whole world now of signalling molecules that exist in certain foods, and those signalling molecules are targeting transcription factors or switches 
in the cytoplasm of human cells. And those switches then travel off to the DNA and activate a whole battery of genes. And so we get this change in gene expression. So that was a huge revelation to me. What year was that that you started working with the company? It was 2005. That was good and early. Yeah, that was good and early to be thinking about that. Yes, but I still hadn't discovered the word eugenomics. It was just a little later on. I'm reading this paper from Ben Van Omelen and I'm looking at the work I'm doing and I'm going, oh, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm working in. I didn't even know such a field existed. So my whole world changed after that because I began to see food in a different light. I began to see human health in a different light. And what I realised, perhaps not straight away, is that when you work in the field of food and signalling molecules and gene expression, you're actually mimicking a lot of nature's own mechanisms. Whereas when you're getting a whole lot of synthetic nutrient supplements, you're not mimicking nature. There's nowhere in nature where you get a megadose of an isolated nutrient. For example, you, you could eat oysters and get a whole hit of zinc, but at the same time, you're getting a whole lot of omega-3 fatty acids and proteins and B12 and so on and so forth. So there's no model in nature for getting an isolated nutrient. And I think that's probably been the thing which most differentiates what I do now and what I think now conceptually from what I did when I was in practice so I'm going to stop you there before we move on to your last kind of educational phase, your PhD. Understand the context of this. And this is the one thing that I've always imagined. You have a, a fearless curiosity. You have an incredible courage when it comes to going against the grain. So I was actually, as you were telling the story, I was thinking about your nutrition degree when you went back to Deakin University and studied nutrition, what kind of student you were. Did you give your lecturers quite a hard time? No, I didn't because I was a distant student, so there was no classroom opportunity for putting your hand up and going, I don't agree with that. They're lucky. They're so lucky they don't realise what they got away with because I can just imagine, Christine, <laughs> you would have had your hand up in class. So I was a very diligent student. Yeah, you're always diligent and yeah. hard working, but I just imagine you challenging some of the nutrition that they were teaching and kind of asking a million questions. I think they're probably lucky to have you as a distant student. They were much broader in their thinking than they were in Brisbane. So I did one semester of a dietetics degree here at the University of Technology and I couldn't get out of there fast enough. Oh, okay. So this was different. This was not dietetics, right? This was nutrition. So Deacon was a nutrition degree. Um, the one at the University of Technology was called Nutrition and Dietetics, but it was very classical dietetics and it, okay. it was counting carbohydrates for oh, okay. And it, it just seemed to me it was so far back in the last century. Okay. Well, I feel better now because that was more what I was expecting. I didn't realize your degree wasn't a dietetic program and was actually quite different as a nutrition program. So that was a really good choice on your part. And yeah, I think so too. I can't even imagine you you got managed surviving through a dietetic story. Right. So you've now gone from teaching to chiropractic, a biochemistry degree a nutrition degree, and you've discovered nutrigenomics and kind of sprouts. Mm -hmm. And so one of the amazing things for those of you that are listening about my time spent with Christine is this kind of fearless 
curiosity and a shame ability to tackle the status quo. That when you see something and you have this ability to deep dive into the scientific literature because of your background in biochemistry, you are friends with biochemistry, not only in the way that you teach it and explain it, but also in the way that you use it in your work. And so what is it about, do you think, your history of learning that has enabled you to be so courageous about tackling status quo, even when your thinking was quite unpopular? And I will talk about when I encountered you and how you threw my head into like a million little pieces. But what do you think it is about your who you are that enabled you to keep pushing those boundaries? I think it's just the need to get to the facts, really. And when I can see that something's being misinterpreted, and there's quite a lot of things over the history of my career, which I think are quite frankly wrong, and yet we keep on doing them as a profession, we continue to do things that are wrong, I have to tell you, it drives me crazy. <laughs> and um, I know I lose friends when I say so, but honestly, the facts are the facts. And I remember when I first presented the concept of NRF2 and the role of antioxidant vitamins in that context in 2010, I just about got booed out of the room. And in that room were colleagues that I'd known for many years. And one in particular owned a supplement company. He was most unhappy. But I will say that a year later, we were on the same platform again at the same conference, annual conference, And he came up to me and he said, you know what, you were right. I've spent nearly the whole year reading all this stuff and you were right. So that's all I need to hear. I only need one every now and again to validate, you know, what I've found. I'm sure it happens more and more often nowadays that people are turning around where kind of science has caught up with you, where, you know, whether it's NRF2 or any of these things that we're finally like, having entire conferences speaking about things that you were talking about 10 years ago. Yes, yeah, well, sometimes when you're a little bit ahead of your time, you have to weather that, but it's okay. Oh, I think you did quite a good job then. I don't mind because if I can find enough scientific validation for what I'm saying, why would I be afraid to say it, really? Why would I? I don't obviously have a great need for peer support or endorsement to the same extent that perhaps I would have done when I was much younger. Maybe it's just the maturity factor. I don't know. But maybe it is. I mean, maybe that is a gift. You know, I think you and I both did our our degrees, our PhD degrees much later in life, where we were much older than our supervisors. And we didn't need that peer acknowledgement. You know, we didn't need, maybe that is one of the clues about what has enabled you to kind of challenge the status quo. But let's go back. Let's go back to how we met. Let's talk about how we met. So that's a great story. 2014. Then you take it from there. So 2014, there was this conference advertised in Castelmare de Stabia on the Amalfi Coast in Italy. And I almost wasn't going to go. Things were very busy at work. And in fact, my PA said, why don't you go? He'd love to go. Just go. I'll look after it here. So all right. I'll do as I'm told. So if I went to this conference, I didn't know a soul there and most of the delegates at the conference spoke Italian. They were mostly Italian or nearby European and here's this girl from Australia and as it turns out, another girl 
from South Africa and they heard each other speaking in the morning tea room or the lunch room or something. And I heard this person speaking proper English, a few people down the queue at lunch. So we got together over lunch and um, I don't think we spoke to anybody else, did we? We got our heads together. Not for the rest of the conference, really. I actually don't think we went back. It was a meeting of the minds instantly and the rest, as they say, is history. And the red wine. There was red wine on the table and white wine. And I think we sat at the lunch table, drank the wine. <laughs> well, you have to drink red wine for lunch in Italy. It'd be very exactly. polite, wouldn't it, if you didn't? It'd be so rude. So we kept up with that for a good couple of days. And we discovered that we always talk at the meeting of minds because, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And when I met Christine, I realized that the 15 years that I've been in this world of nutrigenetics and understanding genetic variability and gene variants and I had been missing 50% of this conversation and the 50% of the conversation, which was about nutrigenomics and gene expression and signaling molecules and how food constituents of genes was sitting with me at the table in at this excelling conference. And actually, it was a terrible conference. That was the other part Christine didn't mention. It was. It was a horrible conference. Like, it was all about big data and who had a bigger machine than someone else and was like, you know, mine can measure millions. No, mine can measure. It was just horrible. So there was like no clinical value to it. Like there was no translational value. So that's why we kind of decided that. So I think for three days, we went to all the different restaurants in this little village and really spoke about how we each kind of had 50% of the conversation that we'd been working on. And then you can carry on of like how we figure it out. We need to bring it together. So it was actually, it was a terrible conference on the one hand, but it was a career-changing conference for us both on the other because you wanted to write a course on nutrigenomics, nutrigenetics, and I've always been a teacher at heart and looking for a place to teach always, and we realised that if we put our heads together, we have both sides of, of the puzzle. So you had the nutrigenetics I had the nutrigenomics from a food angle. Together, we decided we'd write a course. So the last day of that conference, I think we bailed out of the lectures, went back to the hotel room, got our laptops out and sat there and powered away. And so we hatched a plan, as they say. We certainly did, and we did it. And I think in the beginning I remember sitting there going, would you like to write one of the modules of the course <laughs> by the time by the time you got back to Australia, you'd written 50% of the course, right? And it took us like two years to write the course. I mean, it was... It was a marathon, to tell the truth. It really was. It was extraordinary. I mean, now we can laugh, but it did take us two years to write all the content, even though we launched it when we were writing each module as we were launching. So... You're not allowed to say that. Oh, oh okay. Sorry. Pretend I never said that. So, so we had this extraordinary experience where, you know, you don't know what you don't know, you don't know what you're missing, and then you meet someone. I always say Christine's like the yin to my yang of this world of genetics, of bringing together. And when I look at my career and I look back, it's like BC and AC before Christine and after Christine because it really was, I mean, before the genetics only had nutrition, so I was missing 50% of the puzzle. Then I did kind of new genetics, but I was missing this real place where the power was, where the translational value was, which is now that we understand who you are from understanding your genetic variability, what do we do? And this is where your amazing work came through. And it also closed a huge loop for me, which had started when my grand died, which is 
how do we use food to prevent disease, prevent cancer, manage it better? Like, and the power of nutrition, I always said, like when I saw your work, was the first time where I truly understood the kind of the words food is medicine. It was the first time that I truly understood it. <laughs> yeah, it was all you, even from so far away. <laughs> all right, so tell us about your sprouts. It's been quite interesting. So now let's go back to your sprouts and then tell us about how you went from starting to understand that if you grow things on the signal molecules to building one of the most extraordinary companies that is producing such incredible products that are changing gene expression, not to mention going back to university. So let's cover that last part. So it started with this consulting company where I've had this project, as I mentioned before. Um, As it turned out, my husband, who was a civil engineer, an environmental engineer, was working with that company, which is how I got the consulting project as an aside. Anyway, that company was running on... (laughs) This is a pun, seed capital. And um, so it folded after a time. And so John and I decided we would carry it ahead. So John had the expertise at producing the equipment that was necessary to develop a product, not just to grow sprouts, but more importantly, to dry them and process them in a way that protects all of the essential components because the Broccoli seed contains a precursor compound and it contains an enzyme and that enzyme is very susceptible to damage. And if you damage the enzyme, you don't produce the sulforaphane, which is the ultimate bioactive that you want to produce from that product. So John was able to produce this equipment and we spent a couple of years playing with that and developing it to the point where we thought, okay, we have a product, we'll launch it in Australia. And our very first product was just 100% whole broccoli sprout powder. We had no agricultural chemicals of any description in the growing process. And so it's essentially organic, although you can't get an organic certification on, on something that's not grown in soil. So anyway, little by little, you know, little steps, the powder, then we developed a product that was a broccoli sprout capsule, which we called Enduracell. And... Thereafter, we've just continued to develop other products around that. But more importantly than the product, I began to understand by working with other clinicians who purchased this product, some of the results they were getting. One of the most remarkable things that came out of this is we discovered, even though the history of the scientific research on sulforaphane and broccoli sprouts is about cancer prevention, The real core to what we discover happens is in gut health. So because the sulforaphane, which is produced as soon as the enzyme tackles the precursor and it gets wet and it's it's in the gut, there's direct contact between that molecule and the single layer of epithelial cells lining the gut. So the sulforaphane is, is highly bioavailable in the first place But then once it gets into these cells, it's just got one membrane to get through. So you get a very potent dose. So we'd moved along this path a little way, developing some products and just understanding a little bit of what it did. And I thought it's time I did some more formal research. I need a PhD. Nobody's going to listen to me if I don't have the piece of paper to prove that I know what I'm talking about. So I embarked on a PhD part-time, which, as you know, Yale, is quite an onerous task. 
And um, I enjoyed every minute of it, actually. I have to say that. It had its moments. It had some tears and blood and sweat and all the rest of it. But I did enjoy it and I enjoyed the fact that it's research-based. When you do some work, it stays done, unlike the exam cram approach of your undergraduate degree where you've got to cram this information, spit it out on, on a piece of paper on the day of the exam and you either make it or you don't make it. Exactly. Research degrees are different yeah. because you're building on your knowledge and really you are creating your own degree. And you are creating the knowledge base or you're exploring a knowledge base and you decide as you go along. So I think, as you've probably found in your own PhD studies, where you think you're going to start and end up is not necessarily where you do end up. No. Because you have to do so much ancillary reading along the way that you're exploring this and, oh, quick over there, look at that, that impacts this, I better study that, I better learn about this, I better incorporate that and... And so it goes on. So it's a bit of an adventure. And, yes, I did enjoy it, even though it's, you know, extremely heavy workload. I, don't, I wouldn't say difficult. It's heavy. It's heavy going. And writing grant applications and clinical trial protocols is not really my favourite activity. I'm, I'm not sure whose favourite activity that might be. <laughs> You're 100% right. And for me, it did the same thing, that one is, you know, people take you more seriously it gives you an amazing amount of academic rigor and discipline, which is, I think, what it did for me. But also, you know, it gives you a real deep understanding. And for me, it forced me to go into a lab for, for a few years, which I would never have done voluntarily. But let's talk about, <laughs> so let's move on. Like, you have become, without doubt, one of the world experts in sulforaphane. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And I know because I have thousands of practitioners in the US who follow every single word that you say, and it's always ask Christine, ask Christine. But let's just talk about where we are. We've come such a long way, both of us, in our journey to genetics, through genetics. And where we are now and the knowledge we have now is so different than we were 5, 10, 15, and 20 years ago. But first of all, I mean, the, let's, let's answer the question of the podcast. You know, what do you believe the power of genetics to be? I think it's answering that question that I asked way, way back when I was looking at biochemical individuality and I had no way to know how one patient was different from another. So it gives me that information. And when I'm looking at a patient's nutrigenetic profile and the various SNPs that they carry, it gives me some very useful ability to predict how well a patient is going to respond to my treatment. So sometimes I can see a person whose SNPs for detoxification pathways, for example, are all on the less desirable side. And so I know that that person is going to need to work a bit harder. We're going to take a little bit longer. We might have to be a little bit more disciplined. So it gives me the power of predicting outcome to some degree. And it also enables me to convey realistic outcomes for the patient as well so they're not looking at something that's really quite ridiculous I had a patient not very long ago and I'm not seeing patients falling in the clinic this is sort of a patient along the side and this patient had all the very worst snips you could possibly have for redox pathways just terrible and even quinone reductase, which will substitute for MN-SOD in some cases in its ability to mop up 
reactive oxygen species, including superoxide radical. Everything was just all on the wrong side. And I realised I had one other tool left available that I could readily use, and that was melatonin. And melatonin acts very much in the same way. And I wasn't about to give her melatonin supplements. She'd, in fact, already tried those and they didn't work at all well. In fact, they gave her some pretty nasty side effects. So we talked about sleep hygiene. As it turned out, she was a night owl. She'd be up till one o'clock doing all sorts of things and she felt like a zombie all the next day. Yeah. Once I was able to explain to her that you're not achieving anything by forcing yourself to sit up at night. I know your friend can do that and your mother can do that and your cousin can do that, but you can't and this is why. Let's just try this experiment for a month and see what happens. Well, delightfully, it worked. And just by persuading her that she did need to sleep, it's not just like your mother says, you know, you must go to bed early, dear, you'll ruin your complexion and, um, So I think that's a story that tells me if I didn't have that profile, what would I do? How would I address this patient's problem? So that the she had a whole host of things going wrong, that oxidative stress in her, and she was only in her early 30s, it spun out to practically every system of her body from joint issues to adrenal fatigue and, and all sorts of other hormonal things. So that's a happy nutrigenetic profile story. Yeah. And that's just the power of nutrigenetics. And then when we talk about, of course, the power of nutrigenomics, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, when you start using the foods to say, I mean, that's for me. I mean, it's funny that you gave a story about the work I do, but actually I usually talk about the work you do, which is (laughs) the real, real power of genetics is when you understood her redox balance was out, you understood the load, you know, that she wasn't able to manage her superoxide load, but then you make decisions to try and change the way the genes are switching on and off to be able to kind of heal thyself, as we say, you know, to, Mm. and that's the full picture, isn't it? That's how we close the Yes, it is. And to be able to take the patient along with that treatment plan, understanding why it's not just someone nagging you, you need to go to bed early. And understanding exactly. And it's their genes, right? It's not yours and mine. So it's not like their genes are going to change. That's what they got and that's what they need to work with. So I love that story. It's a great story. So we're getting near the end. We've learned so much about you and about your journey. And um, so I guess what I'd love to end with is, you know, you and I attend a lot of conferences and we speak to a lot of practitioners. Uh, We do a lot of education, a lot of teaching. And I'm sure everyone who's listening to this is thinking, my God, you know, you got so many degrees. You like just kept on learning. You've built a brilliant and successful company. You've impacted so many lives. I mean, single-handedly, I think you shifted my mind in the way I thought about nutrition more than any lecture I've ever had in my life, including in my PhD. In terms of how I think about nutrition, by far you've had the greatest influence what is the advice that you would give to someone, a practitioner who's starting out in their career? Maybe they finished the degree, maybe they haven't, and they've got their 20, 30, 40, 50 years ahead of them. Like, what is the advice that you would give them that has enabled you to stay in this amazing journey of growth? Well, um, I think some of the approaches that are being taught at the moment are too reductionist. I see they're mimicking the medical model and I would suggest to a new practitioner to just put that to one side, listen to it and ask the question, 
how does Mother Nature deal with this? If, you know, humans have been for thousands of years on this planet, hundreds of thousands, who knows? How have we arrived here in the 21st century? We've only had pharmaceutical medicine for, I don't know, 100 plus years or something, not very long. How do we get here? So what does nature do? So what I look at now is how does this work in nature? And when I can understand that, I have the confidence to go ahead and think this sounds like a sensible solution. The other thing I think a new practitioner would be wise to consider is not to overtest your patient. There are so many so-called functional tests on the market at the moment that I see really sad cases of patients who basically go into economic burnout buying the tests and by the time the treatment phase comes, there's no money left in the budget to get involved in the treatment. I look at it differently. I would suggest that there are usually, if you're in touch with human physiology and a bit of a general understanding of how cells work, I start there and there are usually some pretty obvious things in that patient's lifestyle, habits, diet, lifestyle that need to be fixed right at the outset. And when you sort those things out, you get a measure towards homeostasis. Then you'll find if they come to you with six symptoms that concern them, you might have cleared three of them out just by doing the obvious then you can zero in on the remaining three symptoms rather than just try and test everything in the beginning. Often those tests that people are doing, they don't change the style of treatment that you need to do. Genetics, of course, Christine. (laughs) My treatment approach these days starts upstream. I look at how do human cells work and there's half a dozen core processes that govern the way all cells work. And your genes will direct you to those anyway. So whether or not you're testing nutrigenetically, those core processes need to be addressed one way or another. And I would suggest that a new practitioner gains confidence looking through those eyes rather than jumping in and doing the tests because the trap I see a lot of younger practitioners fall into is they do the tests and then they're treating the numbers on the test and not taking the patient you know, as a whole example of human physiology and biochemistry. So I think that's probably one of the most important pieces of advice that I would want to give someone, steer away from reductionist approaches and steer away from the bandwagons. You know, we we seem to do this in this profession. We get onto a bandwagon. Everybody's drinking kale juice. Everybody's drinking celery juice. Everybody's having coconut oil. Why do we do this? I mean, if there's good scientific logic for doing it and it's something that's possible to do naturally and nature would perhaps do this, that may be okay. But to jump on these cure-all bandwagons makes no sense to me and there are several reasons why some of those things are really not in a person's best interest anyway. Well, there you have it. So now I think everyone gets to know Christina why she's managed to push us out of our comfort zone, kind of drive new thinking, you know, make us accountable in terms of our scientific rigor, and really just, you know, provide a different way. And as I say, you know, of thinking about, I love the idea of just bring it back to nature, bring it back to nature. Would nature do that? And that's when, as I say, people becomes medicine and we we can heal ourselves. So Dr. Christine Horton, thank you so much for your time. I know I took quite a lot of your time today. It's been 
amazing having you on the show. I've wanted everyone else to hear your conversation in the same way that I've been lucky enough to hear it for many, many years. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Yale. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Power of Genetics podcast, brought to you by 3x4 Genetics. For more episodes, please visit 3x4genetics.com slash podcast. And if you are a licensed health practitioner who would like to apply to join our network of over 1,000 like-minded visionary practitioners, please visit 3x4genetics.com slash apply.